0: I've had students and they'll you, you they've never heard about the allegory of the cave, and you, you give them the allegory of the cave and it, it's like scales fall from their eyes and they now see in addition to under you know, a lot of philosophy is to understand, but part of really understanding well is to see it in some way, to see it instantiated in some way. Playo is so good at that.
1: Welcome to Classical Etc. You're in the studio with Shane Saxon. Welcome to another episode of Classical Etc. Today's episode is about philosophy. And philosophy in classical education. But before we get there, if you enjoy this show, feel free to subscribe to it, give us a like, follow along with us. Now, before we get into the topic of philosophy, which we try not to fly too close to the sun on this uh, on this show, and get too deep into the weeds, so we're going to have some very practical elements. We are educators here, and this is philosophy in the context of education. But before we get there, I have a question for you two fellows. I feel like I need a caveat before I say that. that ta- <laughs> we did not leave time. At out least a pause. Uh, yeah. Off this episode because she doesn't like philosophy. She doesn't like philosophy. She was just texting me just about philosophy here. this morning. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so I, we took the like opportunity to, to talk about I, it. No, no she not even here. that. It's just, <laughs> she's not here. Question that I have for you. What was the last philosophy book that you read?
0: Oh my gosh. Um.
2: Outside of work.
1: No, no, it doesn't have to be.
2: Uh, well, I guess the question: how, how do we categorize philosophy book? Right? So, like, would you consider Plato to Christ philosophy in some ways? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, he's no, recapping philosophy. Well, yeah, I guess um, uh, yeah. But the the only the one that comes to mind is about killed me was Truth and Method. Mm.
0: Oh, <laughs> by
2: by Gadamer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Martin and Mitchell and I struggled through that one
0: together, and um, which was about. So, just so the audience knows. what did we... Not that this is going to help any. Uh, literary hermeneutics, I I think, maybe. Uh, I think very, that's what yeah. it was supposed to be about, yes. Yeah, you yeah, yes. you need to be careful about reading books by Germans with long names, i yeah. found. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. it's wise life advice. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh,
2: generally, my habit with philosophy has been to read with others. Mm. So there's the other one, what was the other one we were doing? Analogia Entis? Yes, but I don't think we
0: finished the analogy of being. Yes, that translation was of that very good. Yes, um, that but but again, but again, very extremely, hard. Extremely. I mean, we we meet with some people who. I mean, I have a philosophy degree. He's got a philosophy background because of his his education. Um, Dan Scheffler, uh, our Memorial College professor, uh, he's got a PhD in philosophy. So some of those kind of books, like that one mm-hmm. in particular. Can only really be read by people who have the training to read it, um, and those actually are not my favorite books on philosophy. Right, really, about they're about on philosophy. Yeah, there's something there's something to this clarity thing that I really yeah. like, yeah. Um, uh, and 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 good writing, which many philosophers don't really know how to do all that well. Yeah, if, if Strunk and
1: White are right that the best way to say something mm-hmm. is the simplest way with the words most commonly known to most people that has an inverse relationship to disciplines where there are so many technical terms yes. that the word choices are very specific and laden with meaning that if you are not deeply entrenched in that particular discipline hermeneutics for instance every, you know every sentence is an exercise in Research. Basically. Well, and this mm-hmm.
0: is why philosophy scares people, and right. it, they're they're justified in that. I think because they they it you know again you have to have that training. And even in the training, a lot of the training is not very good. I went to the University of California, I got my philosophy degree there. In the very first class, you're talking about people who are coming into this fresh. They have you read Aristotle's Topics, which is one of the most, uh, uh, you know, one of the hardest things. Even in Aristotle, Aristotle's not easy anyway. It's one of the harder Aristotle reading. Why would you do that? Uh, Why don't you present some big picture to entering students that they can comprehend before they start getting into the weeds somewhere? Mm -hmm. This is a Mm -hmm. a constant problem.
2: What was that book um, that you gave, Cheryl? It was yellow. It was written by Phaser. Oh refutation of the new atheism what was yeah, it, what was uh, it the last
0: superstition and that's it, it, now even that is going to be a little bit difficult but he's writing journalistically at least yeah. there yeah. And yeah, trying it was very to comprehensible it, it's it's directed toward the uh, the average re, well, the, the average intelligent reader I'll say um, and it's a very good—and it's kind of polemic, so it, it's mm-hmm. kind of fun because he's arguing for a position and against some other positions. That that book was was written when the new atheism was a thing uh, a number of year, years ago. And so it's—the the polemic nature of it makes it a, a, a funner read, I think.
1: On the flip side of the highly technical nature of a lot of modern philosophical writing, it, the last two philosophical books that I read are, one, The Tale of Sisyphus by Camus, which— is difficult, but not as difficult because he's going for a very existential attempt of conveying his experience. But then also The Republic. I read through The Republic mm. just front to back. And while it's obviously a difficult book reading it in English translation, the commentary on The Republic is far more difficult than The Republic itself. Mm-hmm. It, there's a lot that actually stands out and can be helpful for the average person to read. And mm-hmm. that's
0: one of the things that I learned as a student was that that oftentimes uh, you're better off like Plato in particular, because Plato is a good writer and uh, he's, he's really writing interestingly for a more popular audience. Really he's writing for laymen. Um, and, and I found reading Plato far easier than reading the commentaries on Plato. Sure. Now there are some cases when that's not true, but it's, it's more true than you would think that actually reading, reading the actual, famous philosopher is easier than reading the, the commentaries on it.
2: Yeah. And I remember when I was studying philosophy, they would, they would recommend books that um, were written sort of in a platonic style or, and in sort of, or couched in a narrative form so that as we got into philosophy, they would, they would show us how to pull these ideas out. And like, these are the ideas you're wrestling with. This is what philosophy's for so that it wasn't just diving straight into the analytical and difficult.
0: And can I say, just in case we leave this topic and we don't get back to it, this whole uh, how do you approach philosophy, I really do think that um, the books uh, of Peter Kraft, his Socrates Meets books, he starts out with Socrates Meets Jesus, and then he he then goes and he gives really a whole kind of almost history Mm -hmm. of philosophical thought through – Socrates uh, uh, meets Kant. Socrates meets Descartes. Socrates, there's a whole, a whole slew of them. And when I go to, um, to tell a younger person who's wanting to get into philosophy, I say read those Peter Craved uh, Socrates meets books. And also for modern philosophy, I strongly recommend William Barrett, who was one of the great journalistic. You know, literary journalist of the twentieth century who wrote for the Atlantic Monthly magazine for many years, um, and his books, the, uh, the 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 death of the soul, and um, he he wrote several others, the irrational man, which is the best book on existentialist philosophy, I think that's been written. Um, you need to find these journalistic writers who are who understand w- what they're explaining, but can say it in a way that the common person can understand.
1: Yeah. So switching to our, our main topic from, you know, we've established that you guys are interested in philosophy. Martin, you have a philosophy degree. Paul has studied philosophy. You have a philosophy background from your, your, what would you call it? I vocational just shy, training.
2: just shy of an uh, undergrad in philosophy when I decided to move back to the States from Italy.
1: No. Yeah. and so, my dad's a philosophy professor. And so I kind of inherited some interest of in philosophy from him. Um, but the question for us as educators is, and the prompt for this episode really is this, how much philosophy is good or appropriate for a high school or a K to 12 kind of education? What is too little? Doesn't equip a student to navigate the world of ideas because ideas are important. And what's too much? What is taking our interests as nerdy philosophy guys and and putting it down the throats of students when it may be more than they actually need or are equipped to handle? As eighteen-year-old students going into the world, so let me just start there with that most basic question: How much philosophy is enough in a classical Christian education?
2: Also depends on how we're defining philosophy, because you can you can include in the term philosophy like logic, right? Because that is that is a domain of philosophy that you need to you need to learn to reason well in order to reason about the highest things right um or or the most foundational things and so you know in, in that sense you know we've always said you you've got to study logic we you, martin has three programs um and so that's gonna take you at least a year and a half um and also um so and and then this program that I've been working on for years, we've talked about for years, um, classical philosophy. That that's a one year course, but really before they've even gotten there, that's why I've said like material logic is essential before they even get there. You've got to have and and the students are actually going to be having read some of Cicero and and Augustine, and so they've they've started to struggle with deeper ideas before they come to that classical philosophy class. So there, there's been preparation work done right so you could kind of look at it very narrowly and say well at highlands we give them a year right but the reality is we're doing so many things to to lead up to that and to to really make them ready for it and really even our our um the new classical history of art course that we had that conversation with kyle recently is very much a uh he's coming at it philosophically as well. It's not just, um, let's understand these time periods of art, but, you know, what of it? What does it mean about aesthetics for us to do that?
1: Martin, same question. How much philosophy should a student study before they're graduating from high school?
0: Well, <clears throat> I mean, that question could mean two, one of two things, right? It could mean how much actual th- uh, 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 learning, with a philosophy label on it, are we talking about? And how much are we talking about? Because philosophy works its way out, particularly in literature. And so I'll, I'll, some of the literature they would be reading will have some of this in there. And I I really do think um, philosophy in a lot of ways is kind of a top-down thing. And so I, I think that uh, younger kids specifically are – it, it's better that they learn from the bottom up than from the top down because they they haven't had a lot of experience in the world. And, uh, you know, you, you think of philosophers like Immanuel Kant who never got out of Konigsberg, Germany ever. And yet he changed the world with his philosophy. And there's a few people like that. <laughs> um, but um, But mostly people need some experience in life. And it's hard enough to have that for children. And so you, you kind of use literature to fill some of the gaps of the things you're not actually experiencing by reading about other people who did experience those things and, and had relationships and had thoughts about the world. And so I, I, I think that's the better avenue to approach it from. And, and we're, we're, we, we, you know, it's, a, it's a big job just to get that done on the K through 12 level. Uh, so I think that that uh, if you if you were to do a you know actually an explicit philosophy course, I think it should probably re- be reserved for eleventh or twelfth grade, and and it needs to be pretty basic, and maybe uh, have you know have maybe a a survey, maybe take a survey approach to it, just just have them deal with some of the basic ideas, the basic problems of philosophy, just so they know what those are. And, you know, it's like a, it's like a puppy. They need to chew on the toy for a while. And, and, and um, so I, I do think there, you, you are somewhat limited because you again, philosophy takes preparation and mostly what you're doing K through 12 is preparation.
2: And, and I mean, just to follow that train of thought, like, I think there's absolutely a world in which you do too much philosophy in a K to 12 setting, right? Like you, if, if we say that, you, you could make the argument that philosophical thought is sort sort of a culmination of classical training, right? That that you've you've been so well trained enough that you can think about um being itself, right? Not, not just the 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 concrete things in front of you, but like what would be the cause of that thing and the cause of that thing, et cetera. But we're human beings, right? So we need, we need the, the literature and history is bringing in the human, right? But that's also going to affect our philosophy, the way we see the world. And so uh, I would say, I, I would echo Martin on that, that you, you, know, you reserve philosophy as philosophy, 11th or 12th grade, and don't try to do too much.
0: And, you know, people don't do this anymore, but they did a lot of it when I was, uh, when I was growing up, which is work on cars you know, nobody works on cars anymore. You got to take them in now cause they're all, uh, computerized and componentized. Um, but you know, you, you, you first learn how to drive the car. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> um, and then, uh, then when you, um, if you want to look under the hood to see how it works, uh, that's great. Um. But first, you gotta learn how to drive the car, and once you learn how to drive the car and what a car is for and the things that it does, then you can look under the hood and 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 see how all that is able to happen and fix it if you need to. Um, and so, I think that you know, just metaphorically, I think we need a good metaphor to look at this. So In your analogy, that's the one I'm throwing out. Philosophy yeah. is
1: the motor philosophy is the motor but literature latin traditional logic these are learning to drive the car right yeah Yeah. so hypothetical question here imagine you're a person given the argument you guys have made that the study of some philosophy is important so imagine you're a person who is committed to writing a philosophy course for memorial press and you haven't completed it is that (laughs) is that justifiable or is there no excuse for that Paul, question goes I, to you.
2: I live in a human world, and a human <laughs> world in which there's a finite amount of time. And in that finite amount of time, there's a finite amount of things you can do. Um, if you study philosophy, you, know, you might know that, Z- yeah, Shane.
1: Uh what is this, Zeno's <laughs> Zero? I think, <laughs>
2: <Zeno's> I think <laughs> yeah,
1: Aristotle has an answer for you, but I'll let um, slide.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's it, potentially it's all there. Yeah, that's right. Right? It just hasn't been actualized yet. So um yeah, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> we're taping. We're taping instructional videos. You know, finishing up the books. It's. It's. It'll be here soon.
1: So, as you were writing this course, as you were thinking about it, you were trying to prepare that one year of philosophy, capital P, mm-hmm. that our students would actually be studying. What was it important that the students get into if they're if we're going to dedicate a year to philosophy? To me. It,
0: it, do you even remember you haven't worked on it for so long? Yeah.
2: I have worked on it. <laughs> I got a recording tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> <you> <laughs> this
0: hypothetically <is> written. <laughs>
2: um, no, I, th- there were two things. I, I wanted a basic understanding of Plato and Aristotle. And, but fundamentally I wanted them to learn how to th- make distinctions. And, and if you can do that, in a philosophical arena, right? I, you can you can think through anything. So to me, that that year of philosophy, it is getting them content, right? They hopefully they've learned the four causes of material logic, but they're going to understand how important that is once they've gone through that year of of philosophy. We're we're going to you know spend a lot of time in Boethius and seeing how philosophy gets worked out. Um, in, in the Christian world, and 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 Aquinas, you know, there's a whole lot that they learn. But to me, the way that course has to be taught, where students, you know, the the, the videos we're making for it are different than our normal ones. We've got a, a lecture piece and a conversation piece because you have to struggle with it, right? I can sit in front and have uh, of a group of students and have them regurgitate ideas back to me, but that's not helpful. Right. Because when we're saying reserve this for 11th or 12th grade, this is where these ideas are getting solidified in their heads, where it's becoming part of them. It's something that they're going to take with them. And so just that struggle, right. I mean, I had, I had students come up to me after I taught the course and say, you know, I was, I was dealing with, you know, another child and another student in the Governor scholars program who said they couldn't believe in God because, um, you know, an all powerful God means there's no free will. And I, you know, I want to live in a world with free will. And she's like, go read Boethius. He gives you the answer to that, right? Like she could explain it to him. And but it was something where she was so confident because she had struggled with it over a period of several weeks going through that work that she could defend it. Now, I mean, it's easier to say go read the book, but I mean, if they'd had the book, she would have said, Look, here's here's the arguments, right? And I believe those arguments because I've tried to fight against them and I I they win right? And so for me, I mean, there's a whole lot of content that they get insofar as the uh, uh, an understanding of Platonism and Aristotelianism and how that works out. But it's really, for me, the, the massive thing that I think they take out of it is an ability to reason through abstract
0: concepts. And then just to, in, just to encounter some of the great problems you know um and this is why you know Plato is such I, I think a, a good starting point in so many ways for a student is because um you know uh, Alfred North Whitehead said that you know all philosophy is a footnote to Plato and he's the one who kind of charts the course for the rest of philosophy ever after and there there there's there's that you mean Plato and, not white not Alfred North uh, yeah Plato. Yeah, yeah, Plato is, yeah. so um <clears throat> and and then the way he explains something is very concrete, which is what you need. He will give an example of something. you know he's discussing what is justice. And so he articulates the allegory of the cave. It's a story. He will tell you a story. and and I think this is, you know, it that is the best way to teach is through illustration. And so Plato does that very well. And, you know, I've, I've had students and they'll, you, you, they've never heard about the allegory of the cave and you, know, you give them the allegory of the cave and it, it's like scales fall from their eyes and they now see in addition to under, you know, a lot of philosophy is to understand, but part of really understanding well is to see it in someone, to see it instantiated in someone. Plato was so good at that, uh, which is why I think really pedagogically uh, Plato's, Plato's always a good place to start. It's a similar question to
1: Paul, but maybe broader. You wrote this article, "Classical Education and the Cosmic Order," and seem to be arguing. This is published in Artists Librorum, You said mm-hmm. so, published there, and you seem to be arguing that there is something that classical education does philosophically that's helpful for people today. Could you kind of get into that? What is what is what are the assumptions of classical education, and how they um, interact with today? philosophical assumptions that many people have today, consciously or subconsciously.
0: Well, I I think that, um, I think that one of the things that you hear a lot about in discussions of classical education is, is the what's called the transcendentals. Um, the, the, um, the ancient philosophers talked about this and those original transcendentals were five. There were five of them. Uh, there was, uh, the true, the good, the beautiful, um, uh, unity, I think, and being—or I, I think I have that right—but um, but we talk a lot about the good, the true, and the beautiful. Those are three of the original five transcendental[s], and so uh, I think uh, I think the movement now understands that what it is doing is trying to articulate those three things and how they manifest themselves in the world. And so, um, you know, I think that, and I think that we're the only, uh, the only people really talking a lot about that. Those used to be things people actually talked about, and they don't really talk about that anymore in a popular way. And so, I think we're just, you know, all the things that we do and all the programs that we have, and in all the different subjects, that ultimately we're trying to get to those three things. And you know, Plato says, um, I think it's in the Republic. Where he says that if you take the trajectory of the true and you draw a line where that's going, and uh, the good and the beautiful, that all those things—three things—meet in God, and uh, and and so I think I think in a Christian education system, this is very appropriate. This approach is very appropriate to that.
2: Well, and I think it, you'd be surprised how many kids go through uh, a classical program and at the end if you ask them to enunciate maybe what does it mean that something's true what does it mean that something's good what does it mean that something's beautiful you will still get because society is pervasive you will still get um pop culture answers if they haven't gone through some sort of systematic year where we've made all of that clear, right? And so even though we have maybe worked on forming their appetites in so far as what they perceive as beautiful, right? That there is harmony, that there's proportion, that you know, all these sorts of things, they'll still tell you that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Right? Um instead of the fact that there the extra, there is harmony, there is proportion that we can point to and um, You know, same thing with with the good and the true, and so it's important for us to, I think, really clearly lay that out and wrestle with that so, so that they can then look at the world they live in critically
0: and evaluate it in light of what it really
2: means, um, what
0: those transcendentals really mean. Yeah, because the, the chief modern problem with those three issues, the good, the true, and the beautiful, is they've all been, as Paul says, relativized. Uh, more, uh, uh, aesthetics beauty goes first that beauty's in the eye of the beholder then morality becomes relativized it's so what's, what's good for you it's good for you it's good for me it's good for me and then finally in the 20th century it's truth itself has become relativized something can be true for you and only you and true for me and that may be completely different but there's no common thing above both of us that we can say is the true um, and so I think part of the inoculation we have to provide students in classical education is an understanding that those things are objective um and that all this talk about um, about these things being relativized is is doesn't make any sense and People don't really believe it when it comes right down to it. People will talk moral relativism, but when somebody steals their wallet, uh, they all of a sudden become an objectivist. <laughs> you know, uh, so so the people—it's it's not a livable. The modern view of these things is not a livable philosophy. I also uh, wrote an article called uh, "What Is the Christian Worldview," where I I talk about this, and um, and and I and one of the reasons I wrote this article, uh, classical education in the cosmic order, is because I I'm proposing that this. This term worldview it has this relativist ring to it, and uh, it's from the German Weltanschauung, and and it 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 means world picture, or world. It, it sounds very subjective. Your worldview that sounds very relativist to me, anyway, and I think to a lot of other people. And I proposed replacing it with the word cosmology, the 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 study of reality, right. um, and to me that's a that just seems like a lot less. A subjective term I probably will which, not succeed in, in getting anyone to agree with me but I'll, i
2: support Martin you have my vote <laughs> um, but the one thing I was going to bring up because you asked that question about this course which is not yet finished the fundamental question that we ask there is what is the first cause mm. and so Martin talking about how you know with Plato with the true the good and the beautiful they all end in God that's where we're going to end up but we but we get there by asking questions about reality Um and where fundamentally we have to come to a first cause and that first co- cause being God so it, it it's a um but it, then you end up in something which is outside of you that you have to submit to you have to subject yourself to and say okay that that um is something bigger than me it's not I don't get to define my own truth and so that's in, in that course that's the fundamental question through the whole year
1: do you both have been talking up and in- up to a subject that in my upbringing would have been called apologetics. You know, they would say every high schooler needs to take some apologetics so they're equipped to face the world at Highland Zion school. We have an apologetics metaphysics year. Do you think that that philosophy addresses that apologetic concern or why do we use the word philosophy? Why do we spend a whole year on philosophy rather than a whole year on apologetics?
2: Well, we actually spend a whole year on philosophy, which that, you know, which, is a, a fundamentally could be called apologetics because you end up with a knowledge of, uh, that God exists. Right. But we, the, the year we, the next year where we study classical art, the history of art, the, they also spend a semester doing apologetics proper, if you will. But that year of philosophy has given them foundational tools. Um, uh, you know, I, I grew up always, um, being told that philosophy is the handmaiden of theology Mm. right and so if you've got those philosophical tools then you're actually able to do much more apologetically because you've you've got that foundation to stand on
0: yeah and i and i think that you know if i think that apologetics assumes a knowledge of philosophy because if it's not um then all you've got is is techniques for argumentation. I mean, that's the difference Plato would have called it the difference between sophistry and, and philosophy. Uh, y- you can learn how to argue really well, but if you really don't understand the issues all that well, then, you know, uh, maybe you might win an argument, but have you really brought anyone to truth?
2: And maybe we ought to make a distinction between apologetics that— um, Fundamentally based, sort of on interpretation of the Bible, and apologetics that is, you know, would be directed towards a non-Christian, right? And so I think the the way Martin and I are using apologetics is towards a non-Christian, which is saying, okay, fundamentally, how do we how do we defend the fundamental things of the faith, meaning that God exists, you know, that um, you know God. What does it mean that God became man? What does it mean that there's a Trinity? Things that we're all all Christians are going to accept, but that we're going to, you know, in, in the conversations we're going to have with non Christians, that stuff's going to kind of well, come up.
0: Well, that, and that's part of the part of the thing is, and apologize when you're actually dealing with people. Um, most people have not thought about deeper issues very much. And when it starts coming down to whether your faith is true, you're getting into those deeper issues and you can start asking them questions about things. Well, do you think that this is just all here by accident? How do you, what's your view on this? And they realize they haven't really thought this through very well. And if you've got a philosophical background, you can you can guide them a little bit. And just, just guiding them towards truth, just truth in general, is really the first apologetic step anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and, and people, people all of a sudden realize, oh, gosh, there's more to this than I thought.
2: And and that if there's a truth
1: outside me, then I have mm-hmm. to conform to
2: it,
0: right? Reading Cicero's on the gods, that's the one
1: that they read in high school here. The nature of the gods. The nature of the gods. Yeah. It, it's interesting looking at the various arguments that Cicero is responding to, which are you know from the skeptics that are like, "Is there a god? Is is morality relative?" You know, it's all the yeah. same exact conversations in a totally non-Christian context mm-hmm. where they're applying their mind and arguments to it. It's interesting. And I think- really,
0: really, the first the first. Uh, goal in apologetics is convincing people that reality exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> fundamentally. Mm-hmm. And then you, then you, then you, you you start defining what that reality is.
2: Right, right. Well, and that, that book, the, On the Nature of the Gods, that was one book that Cheryl did not want cut out of this course um, because she felt it was important for children today to deal with Epicureans and the Stoics because we have so many Epicureans today. Um, mm-hmm. And, And the the push and pull of the Epicureans and Stoics is instructive.
1: Okay. Let's end the, in the podcast on this, an adult listener who maybe wants to read a little bit more philosophy. Where do they start? It's such a big topic. Where does someone, where are the handholds? How do you get into this conversation, into the great conversation about ideas?
2: I'd go back to the last superstition. I honestly, because it's, it, for for an adult listener who's Christian, who like that that an apologetic would capture them more than just pure philosophy, and it is polemical, but you walk out with a fundamental understanding of philosophical realism, which is coming out of Plato and Aristotle,
0: and and I, I just found it such an enjoyable read. I think that's a good suggestion. Um, a, a number of years ago, I, w- I was uh, going out with a friend of mine to lunch. who was a, a, a salesman at a local radio station and he looked in the back and he saw, I had the book Socrates meets Jesus by Peter Kraft. He said, could I, could I borrow that? And, and I said, yes. yeah, sure. So two weeks later he calls me back. He says, that's the best book I've ever read. It just opened his eyes. He said, can I give it to my, uh, one of the DJs, on the, I, I said, sure. And the DJ proceeded to lose the book and it was out of print and I didn't see it again for a number of years. <laughs> and finally, uh, an university Press brought it back into print. Uh, I, I agree with Paul. Uh, I, I think maybe Socrates Meets Jesus is a, is a more a simpler read mm-hmm. and then, then mm-hmm. read that. But I, w- I would strongly recommend Socrates Meets Jesus by Peter Graved. I would recommend anything in the Platonic Dialogues. Mm -hmm,
2: I'm glad you brought
1: that up because they're, they're actually much easier to read than you would think. And there's great storytelling and you know, Socrates uh, apology is a really interesting read, especially for a Christian. And And a
2: lot of, a lot of philosophy programs will start in the Mm -hmm. apology as well. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great one. Um, But you're right. They're just, they're very readable, very readable. Like I, I, nobody should start with Aristotle. Nose. Right. You <laughs> You should start with Plato. If you're going to go read a primary source, um, Plato is a very good place to start.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, hopefully there are some people who like philosophy who have listened to this point. And for all of you, I thank you. And thank you all for having this conversation. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Classical Etc. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like this episode, consider leaving us a positive review and sharing it with a friend. A huge thank you to the Memoria Press Podcast Network for hosting our show. Be sure to check out all the great podcasts there. As always, I'm Shane Saxon. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Memoria Press Podcast Network, providing a classical Christian perspective on the world of education. To learn more about Memoria Press, visit us at memoriapress.com. To connect with us,
0: find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.